Now they've been relegated to the shoes I wear when I reseal the driveway, so they're mostly tar-covered in black. But um, there's probably an illustration in there. Um, we're talking, uh, th- going through the Proverbs this summer, and um, I've actually been really surprised. I was a little bit nervous coming into the Proverbs, kind of saying, like, what is this really going to look like? Um, and I think how it's been really impacting me and my life, and as I've been talking with my city group, we're really seeing how as we dive into God's wisdom for us and how to live well into this, in this world, that it's pointing us back to Jesus constantly. That we're seeing how uh, faith is very closely related to wisdom. Uh, that the way of life that leads to following Jesus well is, is wise. Um, and so we're going to see that today as we look at a proverb uh, that is addressing money. Now, the, money, the Bible has a lot to say about money that we're not going to cover today. And um, even as we talk about some of the application points uh, for these topics today, I want to just say to you that um, I can't address each of your individual situations from up here. Uh, that even, even the smallest financial decision um, has far more complexity than we can apply a completely broad brush to. And so I encourage you to consider community in that, uh, that we have city groups uh, for this reason, among others, that in those city groups, you should know one another in a way that you could open up your finances even to one another and say, am I blind in this area? How do I need correction in this area? And speak exhortations to one another in that. Would you open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30? And we're going to look at verses 7 through 9 in there. While you're opening those up, I'll give you a little bit of a background around these Proverbs. Um, This is opening up a section of the Proverbs that is um, by a man named Agur. Um, And this section that we're looking at in verses 7 through 9 is the only prayer in the Proverbs. Now, that actually makes sense, um, given how Agur introduces himself. Often, you might think that someone who is going to say that they are wise would give their credentials about just how wise they are, and here's why you should listen to me, because I've got it together. He's actually the exact opposite. Um, In verses 2 and 3, he says, surely I'm too stupid to be a man. Uh, So he's actually bringing his lack of wisdom to the table here, and this prayer is a response in light of that into um, money, finances, wealth, possessions. And so as he approaches that with God, we see that his desire is for God to preserve him in that. He's asking that God would care for him, guide him, and direct his heart in this. Um, So that's my desire for us this morning as well, that as we look at this, uh, that God would do that in our hearts as well. Uh, Let's look at these verses uh, 7 through 9. He says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Would you pray with me? God, we pray that you would um, speak to us by your word, that your spirit would be active in our hearts as we listen. Um, God, give us wisdom in regard to money, that, um, that our hearts would be in Jesus and see him as our treasure rather than riches. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's walk through these verses just a little bit. Um, Agur's topic in this prayer is money, but his desire 
is godliness. His desire is a right relationship with God. See, he recognizes that money can impact our relationship with God. How we look at money, how we handle our money, how we view money will impact our relationship with God. He sees two dangers on each end of the spectrum. The danger of poverty um, is that he would profane God. So he says, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. On the other end of the spectrum is wealth. He says the danger there is that he's full and that he would deny God and say, who is the Lord? That he would not sense his need for God. Those are the two dangers at each end of the spectrum that we're going to look at. And what we're going to see is that wisdom in regard to money is an attitude of settled reliance on God that leads to righteousness. That's what we see when he says, feed me with the food that is needful for me. As we look at both poverty and riches in this passage, I want to say that I know in our church we have a spectrum of economic situations. Um, My exhortation to all of us is to allow God's word to speak to us in both your lack and your plenty. So you may not consider yourself poor, but you need to heed the warning this proverb says to the poor. And you may not consider yourself rich, but heed the warning this proverb gives to the rich. And so poverty, the danger of poverty and lack is to profane God by our actions and attitudes. To profane God is to misrepresent him or to fail to treat him as holy, to doubt his goodness, to speak poorly of him uh, because of our perceived slight from God, that he hasn't, he hasn't taken care of us the way we expected. Now, the danger in this is that we begin to put our expectations on God for what we need. Very few of us in this room or in America regularly lack food and clothing. That's a reality um, that, is, that is real in, in many places and for some people in America. But for many of us, when we talk about what we need, we're actually talking about what we want we're putting our desires in the place of our needs. Keeping that in mind and, and looking at what, what Agur says here, he fears that his desires for what he needs for food would lead him to steal, would lead him to an act of actual sin, something that God has said is wrong. But what he also recognizes is that behind those actions is an attitude toward God, an attitude that God's commands are not worth keeping, that my needs, my perceived needs, even my wants, are more important than faithfulness to God. Ultimately, that this can profane God by saying, God didn't provide. God, your laws are impossible to keep. God, your laws are impractical to live by. God, obedience to you is of little value. If money is tight for you and you're living month to month, trusting God with um, each paycheck that comes in, and a path appears in front of you that you know is not right, but you don't see another path forward, and you're just losing trust that God's going to continue to provide week to week, month to month, how tempting is that path? And in following that path, you may be actually doing something sinful, 
or you may be just doubting that God will provide for you. But I want to push this heart attitude a little bit farther out for us. Again, many of us don't worry about where food is going to come from day to day, yet we can still have this attitude toward God um, that, that is very dangerous. One way that this expresses itself in our culture is around debt. The statistics about debt are that consumer debt, meaning the average debt that the average American family has, has increased 17-fold in the last 40 years. That means that our culture has an attitude that going into debt is normal. And it's very easy to accept that and to say, if there is something that I desire, that going into debt to get that, swipe that credit card, no plan for how it's going to be paid off, that, that that's normal in our culture. But as we do that, what we need to be aware of is that we are shifting our attitude toward money and ultimately toward God. Let's look at this quote from Randy Alcorn about how debt can profane God's character. He says that trust is believing that God will take care of our basic needs. When we go into debt, however, we usually don't do it to meet our needs, but to fulfill our wants. We all need shelter, but do we need a particular house in a certain neighborhood? We all need food, but do we need to eat out? We need clothes, but do we need those with designer labels? Often we define our wants as needs. Through debt, we unconsciously try to maneuver God into a position where he's obligated to provide in the form of our future payments. In a blasphemous role reversal, we set up the rules of the game and expect God to play by them. This proverb is warning you against the presumption of God to say, God, I'm going to go get this thing and I'm going to assume that you will pay for that debt, that you will, um, that you will provide an increased income so I can have the lifestyle that I want. Now, this is not to say that all debt is wrong or conceived out of sin. However, there's this sinful presumption that we're enti- entitled to a certain standard of living beyond our basic needs, and that God is on the hook to provide us for that. It's unwise and sinful to presume upon God. It dishonors his name and misrepresents him to the world. And ultimately, presuming upon God in this way is going to alienate alienate you from God. Now, I want to say to people who are trusting God in their finances week to week, month to month, or maybe who are even in the whole of debt, that faithfulness and trusting God is, is discretion, is living within your means in that. That what God would want for you in that is really to, um, to, to trust him to follow him in that and to recognize that, um, that he is your treasure and not money. See, the danger in this passage, as we look at what Agar says at the other end of the spectrum, is that we would say, the solution to my problem is that I need more money. If I made this much, then I'd have plenty. Don't we all maybe have that mental figure out there? It was, if it was this much a month, um, then I'd be okay. 
But Agar's warning is that we, we can't move that way so fast. We'd want God to give us plenty so that we can live within those means. But there's the danger in that as well. See, as Agur says here, the danger of wealth and plenty is to deny our creaturely reliance on God. Meaning, when we sense that we have all that we need, we forget very quickly that we actually depend on God fully. Now, to, to show you a little bit of a picture of this, let's think about what money or wealth really is. It's really just the output of doing work. It's something we use to trade, to buy things, to represent um, work that we've done. And we as humans are actually the only creatures that God really tasked with work. In Genesis 1, he told Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it meaning um, bring out of it uh, what it's meant to bring. Uh, sustaining food for people, uh, among other things. And so as we work, we mimic our God who made the earth and gave it order. But when our work prospers, we forget that we're working the world that God made and think of ourselves um, as greater than our creator. That's the attitude that denies God, the one that says, I've got it all together. Who is this God anyway? This is a danger in our culture where science has allowed farming to become more reliable than it's ever been in human history. And when farming can withstand droughts and storms, do we forget the God that can snap trees in half, like we saw this week, actually is the one who provides for us and causes the plants to grow? And when we use our money from our jobs to purchase food from all over the world at a store that's just full of food, do we forget that, again, God made it all, and it's God who's providing for us through that job, through even the process of that food getting to the store? When our needs are met and we're satisfied, the danger is forgetting that we are creatures, utterly dependent on our Creator. And we become foolish, saying, Who is the Lord? Now, I want to share a couple of examples here for me um, personally as I've reflected on this. At, how this attitude can creep in. Um, one for me is boastfulness and overconfidence in my work. Um, it's a good thing to be good at your job, um, but when your confidence becomes in your abilities to provide for your family, for yourself, then you're forgetting and denying God. It's a good thing to have money in your bank account, but when your confidence is in your bank account and your retirement plan, rather than in God, then you are denying God. Or if you feel untouchable because of your insurance policy, again, insurance is good. Don't cancel your house insurance plans. I didn't say that. But if you're trusting in that to provide for you, then your confidence is not in God, and you're denying his role as your creator. The love of money and the trust in money will numb you to hearing, obeying, and loving God. We see this um, with someone who encountered Jesus. In, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it tells us about a rich man who came to Jesus seeking eternal life. Jesus perceived that although this man would say he'd kept all of God's commandments, his love for money was greater than his love for God. And that meant that, in fact, he wasn't keeping the commandments. He might be giving to the poor, 
Um, but because his love for money was so great, uh, he wasn't actually loving his neighbor as himself. He, he wasn't keeping the commandments. He loved money too much. And ultimately, because of his love for money, he rejected Jesus. Let that one sit in, that the love of money caused him to reject Jesus. Fine family, how you use your money, how you view your money, is one of the clearest indicators of your priorities and where your heart is. So let me ask you, uh, what, what do you daydream of spending more money on? And when you get a raise or come upon money unexpectedly, where does it go first? Or are you generous with your means as you seek to love your neighbor? So what we should see from Agar's two warnings here is that there's not an income at which you will begin to trust God's provision perfectly. There's not a tax bracket that leads to a right relationship with God. That a raise at work is not the ultimate solution to your problems. God doesn't call us to a specific income level, but to a heart that loves and relies on him. And that's what we see um, in the central part of this request. That he says... Feed me with the food that is needful for me. That's in verse 8. Another way we could translate that is the bread of my appointed portion. Meaning, God, give me, give me what I need. And this statement, um, in it I hear some echoes of God's faithfulness to his people throughout the Bible. One of them is uh, in the Exodus. So as God rescued his people out of Israel, he led them into the wilderness to take them where he had promised but they grumbled because God had led them into a wilderness that wasn't able to provide food. So God heard them, and he provided them with manna, bread from heaven. This bread was good for one day at a time. Those who took the extra and tried to keep it would find it rotten the next morning. It wouldn't last. See, God provided their needs, and he did it in a way that taught them to rely on him. Do you see God's good provision in that? Similarly, Jesus reminds us that God cares for his creation. He says in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The answer to that is yes, you are. God has cared for you as creator, but he's also sent his son and made himself a father to you. He cares for you as a father and a savior. Jesus reminds us that God cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field who have no preparations, who have no plans. And how much more will he care for his children? If we believe that God provides for us, if we believe that he is our treasure and not money, how do we manage our possessions in light of this? And again, there's, there's no simple answers here. There's no um, way that anyone can give you a, a checklist of do all of these things. And the Proverbs show us that it's no solution to have no money and that wealth produces problems of its own. As the great American poet Christopher Wallace would say, mo' money, mo' problems. Um, 
But what does a transformed heart look like practically in how we manage our resources? Now, let me say this. I'm going to talk about generosity and giving. And I think that's a very healthy thing. It's a thing that, as a Christian, you should be doing. But it's not your generosity that wins your salvation or brings you into the kingdom. It's the generosity of God toward you. Right? So let's remember that as we talk about this. And the picture that I want to give is um, just to retell a parable um, that Jesus told in Luke 16. He talked about a dishonest manager. And this manager uh, ran afoul of his boss. His boss found out that he wasn't, uh, wasn't doing his job well, that he was dishonest. Um, and so the manager said, I'm going to take away your position of influence. This manager was shrewd, though, and he knew, okay, I've got this last bit of influence in this job. I need to use this to uh, gain something that'll last when I don't have this job anymore. And so he went around, um, called in the people who owed his master money, and said, I'm going to let you pay it off for less than, you, less than you used to owe. Jesus does not commend the dishonesty of this manager's practice, but he says, look at the shrewdness here. Look at how he converted what he had in a time that was about to come to an end and converted it into something that was of value in, the, in what was to come. In 2014, the Russian ruble started losing value rapidly, and many Russians, realizing what was going on, ran off to the store. You might say they rushed off to the store, if you were making dad jokes like me. But they tried to buy iPhones and other technology, and the reason was their hope was that tomorrow the iPhone would hold more of the value of their wealth than the ruble. See, money in this life is ultimately like the ruble. It's not able to hold value. Ultimately, your money is going to rot like the manna that the Israelites tried to store up. But Jesus invites us into his kingdom where our inheritance from the Father is eternally secure. What I want to say is, if we trust in God to care for us in this life, and we trust in our internal inheritance in him, what does it look like when we pursue um, the good of God's kingdom with our money generously. There was a uh, study a few years ago that showed that about 90% of physical money in the U.S. has cocaine residue on it. Um, so if you want to get rid of any of your money because that grosses you out, you can let me know after. Um, but our money is literally drug-stained. It's stained with all of the evil and misuse and problems of this world. But what a picture of God's kingdom breaking into this world it is when God's people take that very same money and use it for purposes that are glorifying to God. When we use it to provide food and shelter to the poor in our community, when we use it to care for those in need in our church family, when we use it to meet the needs of refugees displaced by evil around the world, when we use it to make Jesus known where he's never been heard of. Did you know that less than 1% of all Christian giving goes to places uh, where there's no message of the gospel available? Less than 1%. What a beautiful picture it is to take this money stained with the evil of the world and use it for the sake of the kingdom. That's the opportunity we have. So again, I'm, I'm not first calling us to start with generosity, but I'm saying that generosity 
is, uh, is, a, is, the, is the correct response, is the appropriate response to God's generosity to us. As the story of the rich ruler warns us, if we say mine to our money, our money is all we're going to end up with in the end. God is our treasure, not money. Now, um, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians about uh, the Macedonian church, and uh, one thing that Paul um, was doing at the time was he and some other uh, followers of Jesus were gathering a collection for the church in Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem was on hard times in terms of persecution and money, um, and the Macedonian church um, was giving generously to that. But they were poor, um, and, and Paul was explaining this to the Corinthian church, um, and this is what he says. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what Jesus calls us to. Jesus came, Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, so that we become children of God. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that you have called us your children, um, that we have an eternal inheritance in you. God, we, we just know and we see the danger of money. We know how it can control our hearts, control our lives, uh, numb us to you, cause us to deny you. Um, God, we just pray that by your spirit that it wouldn't have that power in our lives and that instead um, our use of money would be um, transformed by your love for us. We ask that you do this for the sake of your name. Amen. Uh, we've